HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great tasting, high quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Good Monday afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. And today we are honored and very excited to have um, Paul Kinstead on the show with us. Um, Dr. Paul Kinstead is the co-director of the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese, otherwise known as VIAC, a professor at the University of Vermont uh, in the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences, and just all-around cheese expert and super smart yeah somebody uh who i admire greatly though i've never met um <laughs> so are, are you with us paul i sure am yep uh thank you so much for for taking time out to be on the show uh it's a real real pleasure to talk with you my pleasure um so my first introduction to your work was actually through your first book um american farmstead cheese a practical guide to making and selling artisan cheeses um, and, uh, I just, I found that book fascinating. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit about, uh, your background and, and your career and how you got into the whole cheese thing in the first place? 
Yeah, um, I'd probably have to go back to my childhood, believe it or not. I grew up in, in uh, eastern Massachusetts, uh, sort of suburban Boston, but at that time it was still really rural. I grew up in a town called Northborough, and, uh, but at that point the region, eastern Mass, was changing very, very rapidly, and, and uh, it was changing because of the high-tech boom and, and uh, you know, companies like IBM coming in there, and it was, a, it was a great time. This is the late 50s, early 60s. And my dad worked for IBM, and that brought us to eastern Massachusetts and Northborough. And I, I, my first home was in a, in a housing development that had been a dairy farm uh, just a few years earlier. I lived on Meadow Road. It gives you an idea of, of uh, what that territory was like before the housing development. But there were still lots of farms and, and uh, apple orchards and other types of fruit orchards around. It was a... a it was a, a wonderful place to grow up. But the reason I mention that is, that is that there was a barbed wire fence that separated our development from the working farms. And so there were, there were cows right beyond the, the fence, and we used to, as kids, pet them, and I used to play out in the fields. And, uh, but by the time I was about six years old, that disappeared, the cows were gone, and then housing, new housing developments were, were, were springing up all over the place around my the wonderful places that I, I had, had played as a kid. And that, that made an impression with me. Um, I then moved to further closer to Boston, uh, you know, more suburban life, and, and went through school, uh, went to college, started at the University of Chicago um, as a pre-med student, and I, I did not like the city. The, the University of Chicago is a wonderful place, but I, I just did not like the city. And my knee-jerk reaction was to go back to the country. And a 180-degree turn would be Vermont. So I, <laughs> I decided to go to the University of Vermont, not knowing what I wanted to do. And, um, but I, I transferred, applied, transferred, got in. And it turned out that, that uh, I could get in-state tuition as a Massachusetts resident if I took dairy technology as my major. Typical <laughs> agreement. So that, I stumbled into dairy... Although I, you know, I was thrilled because it brought back childhood memories, and uh, you know, I loved it. Stayed on for a master's degree, and by that time, by the time I finished that master's two-year program, I knew that I, I, I was going to be a researcher, and I knew that cheese was was the only thing I would work on. I, and and so when I applied for PhD programs, there were only two places I applied, and only two two faculty members, professors that I wanted to work with, and they were the cheese guys, I mean, the big cheese names. And I ended up going to Cornell and working with Frank Kosakowski. And, um, and the rest was history. It just was, I like to think of it as it was meant to be, right from, <laughs> right from the beginning. Um, and, and it became a real passion because having watched Northborough, my home, change dramatically as a child, um, when I see the same thing happening all over this country and, and working landscapes disappearing, and, and Chittenden County in Vermont, where I live now, constant battle to keep farms working, keep the, far, the, the working landscape open, that, uh, you know, it, it becomes more than just a job, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a calling, in my case, to use cheese and, and to support cheesemakers as a way to, to, to keep my childhood dreams alive. And it sounds kind of corny, but it's actually true. No, it doesn't sound corny at all. And and I, it's funny. I, I I grew up in a subdivision outside of Chicago that sounds pretty similar to uh, to where you grew up. Uh, oh, it used to be all 
all corn, you know, agriculture and cornfields out there. I remember going out there, and, and uh, I, I bet it's changed a lot now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the same deal. It's the same deal. It's just lots of uh, lots of houses. Um, but uh, so that that is really, uh, I, I mean, so it all it all makes sense. You just wrapped <laughs> it up in a nutshell. Um, and Frank Kozakowski, for our listeners who don't know, um, is an amazing guy. He was one of the founders of the American Cheese Society and just a huge proponent of um, American cheese at a time when, you know, there are very few resources for cheesemakers. So if anybody doesn't know Frank's uh, work, um, they should uh, definitely check him out. Um, but so, th- so that, that leads me to my next question was, you know, you have this sort of very scientific research background and then you wound up, um, you know, being a founding member of, uh, the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese. And I wanted to talk with you about how you went from doing that more esoteric type of work to founding something that really is about helping, uh, artisan cheesemakers who, who, you know, it's a totally different thing. It is totally different. It's a 180 degree turn. And, you know, I, at, at, at the beginning of my career, and, and even when I was back in, in graduate school with Frank Kosakowski, I thought this farmstead cheese thing was absolutely goofy. And when, <laughs> when Cozy decided to create the American Cheese Society in 1983 and assigned all of us graduate students to be the gophers to pull the conference off, I, I really resented it. And I, I, you know, I had to speak at the conference, and then I had to be the first vice president because. I was assigned to do that, <laughs> and, and uh, I thought this was goofy. And, and you know, but I finished my degree, my 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 PhD dissertation, came to Vermont in 1986 in January of '86, and and my first before January was done, laid in my lap by by you know a number of circumstances was a, a project that I had to do with a new Vermont farmstead cheese company that had just started that was uh, making French, you know, Brie and Camembert-style cheeses, and they were entering into a joint venture with a, a, uh, a fourth-generation Brie and Camembert company, award-winning company in France that, that um, makes raw and raw milk Brie and, and, and Camembert. And they, these two companies wanted to, wanted to ask the question, can we make a genuine Brie and Camembert in Vermont using pasteurized milk because, of course, our regulations are different than in France, and, and the milk has to be pasteurized. Mm. So it became a research question. I had to I had to work on this project, still thinking this is a fad. This is a way I've I've got to get you know my research program off the ground. I've got to, I've got to you know, publish or perish. And why am I spending time doing this? But I had to do it. Well, we started these. This was a week long series of of cheese making trials where we made about seven hundred pounds of of brie and camembert over five successive days, and, and somehow word got out to the local um, newspaper, the Burlington Free Press, that this was going on. They send reporters there, start covering the story. And, you know, it's a very engaging story with these, you know, the French sent over their master cheesemakers, and, and, and it, was, uh, it, was very, it was a lot of good photo ops. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, the local network TV stations, the affiliates start sending camera crews in. Oh, my goodness. And the the evening news. All three network affiliates do this. And then the Boston Globe starts writing (laughs) stories. And then then the New York Times, for heaven's sake, (laughs) puts a big, big spread uh, in one of the papers on on this project. And, and, you know, this this public captivation with farmstead cheese. This is 1986, before the real, you know, growth in, in farmstead cheese making. I, I, was, I was dumbfounded, 
and, and I didn't understand it. Wow. But what, what, what also was happening at the same time that, that I also didn't understand, my second research project, which was, again, 1986, was the other end of the universe, a, a Monsanto-funded project looking at RBST and its use in Jersey cows and effect on milk protein distribution. Mm. And, and that was the project I was excited about. I thought that's the future of mm -hmm. the dairy industry. And, and I want to be there. You know, This is before RBST had been approved by the FDA, and this is part of the, of the approval process that Monsanto was going through. Well, we, we did that project, and, and there was enormous media attention, but it was polar opposite of the Farmstead Cheese Project. Huh. Fierce public opposition, negative media. Um, you know, it was, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. <laughs> I thought yeah. this was a great project. <laughs> and here the public's all excited about this goofy Farmstead thing. <laughs> well, what I came to realize, and it took a couple years for this to happen, was that, that those, the public reaction was really the opposite side of the same coin for those two projects, that, that this was a time that, that the growing public discomfort with, with the food system, the conventional way that we've developed our food system, was just beginning to really crystallize at that point. And, and the Farmstead Cheese Project was a positive reaction to a different way of doing things, a different way of thinking of the food system. And the, and the, the BST Project very much was a, a negative reaction to, 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 to what the public perceived as, as wrong priorities, wrong values. Hmm. And, 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 it, and so these two projects really reinforced eventually in my mind, this is not a fad, this farmstead cheese thing. This is not, this is not a, a passing trend, but this is a fundamental shift in the way we view food in this country and that things are changing and that, and that to be at the forefront of farmstead cheese is to be at the forefront of, of a large movement that's important, and we don't know where it's going to go, and we still don't know completely where it's going to go, but it's not a fad, and that's why I eventually became reoriented towards the artisan farmstead cheese world. I was it took just a while, gonna, though. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask maybe just further into that, what kind of made you come around to, to farmstead cheese? Did you ever, you know, taste anything along that process where you were like, wow, this is really worth you know looking a little bit more into or was it really that media attention that you know kind of probably made a lot of people realize that there was something to it yeah that's a great question and and it, it wasn't the, the first and it was partly the second the the media and just recognizing the potential there and and the potential for publicity and for some research and for you know, universities love to have positive stories to talk about, and, and this, is <laughs> this is really positive. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what really, you know, from, a, from the standpoint of me as a university researcher and meeting my, the needs of my stakeholders, what really shifted my direction was starting in 1988, you know, just two years after this first project, Vermont Department of Agriculture comes to me and says, we're, we're concerned about this growing group of artisan farmstead cheesemakers in Vermont. By this time, we had six or seven of them, and they, they're just springing up all over the place. <laughs> Troublemakers. And, and, and they, don't have, they don't have training. You know, they're, they're coming from different walks of life and backgrounds. They're not food scientists. And right. we, we'd love to have you, Paul, we want you to, want you to do a, a workshop, a short course, you know, three-day short course. We'll, we'll pay for you in the summer to do this. To, to give these folks some training so that, that they can have the tools and the underpinnings that, that they need to, 
to really go the next step. And so it was, it was the state of Vermont that inspired me to begin to allocate my own resources and mm. time and interest to this growing group. And that was 88. By 1990, 91, the number had, had almost doubled. And they're calling me now because I'm the cheese guy at UVM. And when there's a problem or an issue, um, you know, they have to talk to somebody. And, and they're my stakeholders. Now, I, most of my research at this point is still with very large industrial cheesemakers, and I mean the biggest of the big, and, and that's where my heart was beginning to shift away from. And, and um, so, so it's a, it's been, it was an evolutionary process. The, it seems like the uh, Vermont Department of Agriculture is just really great. I mean, compared to a lot of other states out there, it seems like they really... Um, they, kind they were on the ball right it. from the beginning. Yeah. I, I have, and I say this absolutely transparently, I have nothing but good things to say about what is now the Agency of Agriculture, what had been the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. They, they saw, you know, they, they saw the, the potential for Vermont and for a, a different you know, type of, of niche product, artisan cheese, which was really exotic at that time. And they were willing to make some investment in it, and they were willing to, to provide encouragement and to provide a, an environment that was relatively safe and friendly in, a, in a, an American climate that was very hostile originally to these farmstead cheesemakers. There was tremendous suspicion back in the, the 80s and 90s that these guys were going to ruin the industry. You know, they're all, they don't know what they're doing. They're going to poison everybody. And, um, you know, and, and that, there's still some of that concern out there even today, but, but it's a different world today. And but so you're right. The agency was, or the department was ahead of their time in my view. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, uh, that's incredible. Um, so what, uh, what kinds of, you know, things were you teaching at those early workshops and how does that differ from the courses that you currently offer at, uh, at VIAC? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. I go back and look at the, the curricula for those early workshops and it was, it was, uh, you know, teaching the steps of cheese making using the old cheddar and mozzarella models. You know, I, I, wasn't trained in, in you know, traditional cheesemaking and, and artisan cheesemaking, European, you know, so I, I, was a, I was a cheddar, mozzarella. Um, Gouda was pretty exotic, but I knew about it. <laughs> I, knew, I knew enough about it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, my not, cottage cheese, the, the big commodity cheeses, hmm. I knew, and that's what I used as models. But when I look at what we teach at, at VIAC now, you know, in terms of, of uh, the types of cheeses we, we deal with, and the interest of our stakeholders, the, the ones who want to learn about artisan cheesemaking now, it, it's a whole different world. I've had to learn a lot, and I still have a lot to learn. Sure. And I was going to ask maybe just really quickly numbers-wise to give people an idea. You said there were about six or seven cheesemakers when you first started. Do you have any idea of, of how many there are now who are using resources Well, in 86 like there were two, as I recall. There were two, and by 88 there were six or seven and and by by uh, the late uh, 90s, 97, 98, when the Vermont Cheese Council was formed, there were fourteen or something like that. And now we're, you know, pushing forty. Um, the number keeps changing, and it generally keeps going up. So it might be over forty, but somewhere in, in that range. Wow, that's exciting. And, and so we just had we had a we had a uh, I mean we have a, a VIAC VIAC workshop going on today a new a new uh, new group come in and there's a, a couple uh, a, a couple of folks who 
said their their hope and dream is to is to get a, a you know a farm or a property that that they've had in their family. They're they're coming back from somewhere else to 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 resurrect it and and um, you know bring back the farm that had been long since um, inactive and and start cheese operations. So we, we see newcomers coming all the time, and that's that's uh, you know really exciting when you think of the impact on on the place on what Vermont is. Yeah. Trying to preserve in a world that wants to develop, 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 trying to preserve a sustainable lifestyle for cheesemakers and for the rest of us who really value that. Exactly. Um, well, so I was wondering when you're talking about how uh, the curriculum has changed and the kinds of cheeses people are interested in learning to make now, just in your own experience in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, have you yourself um, done a lot of traveling and going to Europe and other places to to see these traditional methods and kind of learn that at that end of it as well? Or, or have you, uh, yeah, or I guess. Yeah, that's uh, great question. I, I, I wish the answer were yes. The answer is no, although I have traveled a lot, but mostly to teach others industrial mozzarella cheese making <laughs> uh, because, because there, was a, there, was, there was a demand for that knowledge and people would pay me to go places and I've been lots of places, but not, not to study and to learn traditional European techniques and, and so forth. Um, what we've done in, in VIAC is uh, we've brought experts over from Europe uh, on a number of occasions to, to do theme co- thematic courses that, that uh, you know, go through the traditional technology of some of these cheeses. I have no idea how to make, basically, and how to, you know, how to carry out affinage, because I've never had that experience. We bring experts in, and we've also had the, the, a, a great blessing of having European folks on staff, like Monsi Almina, Dr. Dr. Uh, Almina, and Mark Truart, who was our master cheesemaker, who just left for a wonderful job in industry, we can't keep him forever. <laughs> but we've we've had that we've had that European expertise that I didn't have to duplicate. That's but I would love to duplicate sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just that's amazing. It's almost like you know, I, you know, farmers, you know, have to oftentimes have people come to the farm to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. have those kinds of interactions because it's hard to get away. And I imagine, you know, for you too, with your research and everything, it's hard to get away. So it's so wonderful it that you have that. Uh, you know, if you like, if 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 you build it, they will come. And and yeah. so people have they come have to come. It. it has been unbelievable. You know, over the past seven years, they they keep coming. It, and they, you know we had today in our, our class today every, every every time it's it's you know something new we have someone from India um, wow. here learning wow. and and someone from Brazil we've had others from Colombia we've had them from from Russia and and uh, and other parts of Eastern Europe as well as every state in the Union and who knows where else. Wow, that is it is so inspiring. Well, I, I'm wondering um, just because I feel like you know I I have an art background. I feel like you know you were talking about um, cheesemakers coming from different walks of life. Can you speak a little bit to um, the whole idea of art versus science and cheesemaking and how you feel those two things intersect and and what you know what kind of technical prowess a cheesemaker in terms of chemistry and stuff should be expected to have versus the more I don't know artisan uh, mm. philosophy. That's a great question, and, and it's one that I've wrestled with for, for a long time. When I first started interfacing with the artisan cheesemakers, the farmstead folks, 
there was a lot of suspicion there. Um, I, I had to gain their trust that there was a place for science hmm. because they're, you know, in the, in the 80s, the concept of, of traditional cheesemaking was the antithesis of, you know, science and standardizing and industrializing, and, and it was all lumped together. And science was the thing that, that was the downfall of, of cheese. But the same science that runs, you know, these large plants that make up to a million pounds of cheese a day, it's the same science that governs what happens in that, in that you know, small vat that's being made by hand. And, and there's a certain, you know, base knowledge that can help the cheesemaker be a better artist. Not re- and I always say this, not replacing the art, you know, the, the, the feeling by hand and, and, and uh, you know, the nurturing that comes with hand-making something, but in this day and age, in this world that we live in, you have to make cheese consistently excellent, and things go wrong. And oftentimes, a little bit of science can help troubleshoot problems before they become big problems or solve problems once they happen, or preferably preempt the problem so they don't happen in the first place. Mm, and so there is, there is this balance, and it's, it's one that the artisans have come from in the 1980s, great suspicion and even when I wrote American Farmstead Cheese, which was actually written in 2002 on a sabbatical leave, didn't get published till 2005, but, but even in 2002, you know, I'm apologizing almost in some of those chapters for, you know, there is a reason to learn the science, you know, trust me, it's not going to take <laughs> away from your art, because there was still that suspicion. Now, the, the people coming to the VIAC courses cannot get enough science. They, uh, they, they, it's, they're like sponges. And you go to the American Cheese Society meetings, like in Montreal just, just last month. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, there's technical sessions that, that are crowded with, with cheesemakers wanting to know, to dig deeper into the science. Now, the danger is, well, I shouldn't say the danger, but one of the things I'm concerned about is in the, in the, the, the euphoria to be more in control and, and to, and to you know, master the science. Don't forget the art. Don't, don't change who you are um, because there's, there's always this pressure to get larger, to produce more, to keep your customers happy. And, and then there's the pressure of, of cost, which we're seeing creeping into the artisan business. Right. That, that, you know, there's, there's concerns about lowering costs and, and greater efficiency. And, and, of course, I understand that. But the... But the, you know, the temptation is to begin to incorporate more and more scientific tools that begin to route out the art and replace the art with something else. It's almost inevitable that that's going to happen unless folks fight it. Hmm. And where do you draw the line? And how do you, you know, people have to make a living. They have to be able to make money right. making these cheeses. And, and what is the appropriate use of science? And when can you go too far? Sometimes I, you know, I think there are there are some cases where, where artisan cheesemakers may be on the threshold of going too far or turning into something they weren't. Maybe that's a good thing. There's a, there's a lot of room in in the artisan cheese and the specialty cheese area for diversity. Seems like but now. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just worry about completely losing sort of that that handmade um, tradition that was the origin of this movement. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems like now maybe the next step is kind of finding that balance between the art and, and the science. 
and making money at it, right. and making a living, right. sustaining. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And especially when the economy tanks and and it you know it becomes that much, you know, markets tighten up a little bit and and the competition is is much greater than it used to be. I mean, so many great cheeses out there. That's great. That's wonderful. But it also creates more stress on cheesemakers. Right. Well, I've and and you know our side of the business, the selling part. It seems like the demand is growing just as quickly. Well, the yeah. demand is 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 outstripping the supply still. So I feel like cheesemakers shouldn't, you know, shouldn't worry too much because I feel like there's so much room uh, and so many channels uh, to be able they to sell to these that. products. That's a, that's, a, that's a message that's important, and you know, and it's an incredible message given the times. The, you know, the economy. Yeah. I and, can remember at at the American Cheese Society meeting years ago and I gave the keynote address and and we were still at the top of the boom and I you know I was trying to sort of speculate about the future and and asking the question what happens what happens when the, the economy finally does tank because at that point we had been had this long boom for so long everybody sort of felt and assumed that good times were here forever but you know would would your customers be loyal when the economy tanked and I think the the the, uh, the data is in now, resounding. You bet. You know, if anything, as you just said, the you know the demand is greater. Yeah. Which yeah. is which is just wonderful. Um, well, I I feel like now we're going to have to hopefully have you back and devote yeah. a whole other show to this. But I want to talk about your new book for yes. the last couple yes. minutes yes. that we have because I'm very fascinated to know what's uh, what's next. Well, I I, I just. Uh, submitted a manuscript to, uh, to the publisher, actually publisher of my first book, Chelsea Green. And this new book is, is a, a book on the history of cheese and its place in Western civilization, so cool. which grew out of American farmstead cheese. When I, when I wrote American farmstead cheese in 2002, took a sabbatical leave for a year, and almost as an afterthought, decided to put two introductory chapters on history of cheese just to provide context for the revival of artisan cheesemaking in America, and, and just to set the stage, if you will. And I, you know, I was four, it was April, <laughs> it was mid-April, I started in January, four months into, into the, the writing, I'm still on chapter one and two, and I realized I can, I can spend the whole year on chapter one and two, but I've got to write the rest of the book. <laughs> and and I was, it was so captivating. For so me, I thought, too. All right, all right, I, I can't, I've, I've got to stop now. <laughs> and, and write the rest of the book. But, but when I get back to full duty at the university, I'm going to develop a course over the next couple of years on cheese history and, and, and integrate the science of cheese making into, into the interpretation of history so that we can fill in some of the, the blank areas where, where we don't have good information, but we can, we can sort of theorize what must have happened based on what the cheesemaker must have had to have, have done in order to make cheese in that context. So I, I went back and did that, actually, and taught the first course, Cheese and Culture, in, in 2005. And, and uh, you know, the student response was really good, really positive, and kept teaching it and made it a, finalized the course as a permanent offering in 2008. And it was out of the course that, that you know, it then became clear, I, I really need to get this into a, a unified body, a written body of knowledge, and that then became the inspiration for the book, which I took a sabbatical leave in 2010, 
And I've been, I mean, I've been working on this thing for seven years now, basically, but intensively the last couple of years, cloistered away, <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to just be away from everything. As, as you have to be when you're working yeah. on something like that. It's, uh... And, and it's, it's so big, and, uh, you know, it's overwhelming. By the time this summer rolled around, I had two more chapters to go. I was, I was intellectually dead and emotionally <laughs> exhausted. I, I, I couldn't sure. take it. But, I, but my, my family went away to Europe for three weeks on a French trip that my daughter was on. I should have been there learning <laughs> artisan cheese making, but I couldn't go. But I had three weeks of absolute silence, and I just pushed, pushed, pushed. And it's done. Um, so we're, talking, wow. we're, we're looking at a, 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 a spring release, March or April, somewhere in that, that range. That is, I mean, it is just so exciting. 11,000 years of history. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. Wow. So did, did you do like, it, it, does the book encompass uh, different, different parts of the world? Is it just Europe? Is it kind of, is it comprehensive it, geographically? It touches, it glances off of major branches and trajectories of, of I mean, it, it tries to link everything together from, you know, 7,000 BC, basically, actually 9,000 BC to today, you know, that everything is linked together. No cheese developed in in, in isolation. They're all part of a family tree, and it's, it's really hard to... I don't know if this is going to work, but we'll find <laughs> out. I like it. I'm sure. It's I mean, been great fun in, the, in any event. The, the, first, uh, yeah, the first chapter of your first book just captivated me in such a way. I, I just found it so completely fascinating. And, uh, and I admit freely that I just like use it shamelessly when I'm training people <laughs> about cheese. And I tell them the stories that were written in the first chapter of your book. And it is like, without, without a doubt, people just become fascinated in a way that that they're not when you're just talking about the specific flavors of a cheese or even, you know, American cheeses, how nice it is to hear the story of each individual farm. When you really get into sort of the anthropology of how they all developed, it's just... Yeah, uh, well, I, thought, I appreciate that, that. That makes You just made my day. Oh. <laughs> but, but it is an engaging story. I, I mean, I, I just was captivated by it, and so it's run my life for the last few years. But. Oh, wow. Well, uh, well, we can't wait to yeah. read it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, and unfortunately, it looks like we, we are out of time for today's show, but I, I really hope that maybe we could convince you to come back uh, on the show another Monday and, uh, and, tell, us, and tell us more, because yeah. I feel like we'll you know, a, we just we'll scratched the surface. We'll have a book release show when, uh, when the book comes out. Yeah. yeah. Any, anytime. Always happy to talk about cheese. <laughs> <laughs> us too. Well, thanks again, and uh, stay with us again uh, next Monday. We'll be back with another episode of Cutting the Curd. Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. Broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a message from Fork and Anchor. Aaron Fitzpatrick, the host of our wine program, Unfiltered, is looking for help on Kickstarter to open... This is a message from Fork and Anchor. Aaron Fitzpatrick, the host of our wine program, Unfiltered, is looking for help on Kickstarter to open Fork and Anchor, a general store inspired by two food-loving ladies with an equal affection for urban life, the sea, and the agricultural paradise of Long Island's North Fork. The store is situated in a growing community of farmers and winemakers and will become a meeting place offering prepared foods, a variety of sun-dries, and a selection of homespun products, many of which will have their origins in New York State. 
Your backing will help them fulfill their dream of fostering relationships with the community and making the local food system accessible on a broader scale. Search kickstarter.com for Fork and Anchor and donate today.